0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, your great presence here at the fourth annual uh, William Russell Jazz Lecture. In 1992, the Historic New Orleans Collection acquired Mr. Russell's tremendous treasure trove of more than 56,000 items. Since that time, it has been consulted by hundreds of scholars on a daily basis. We'd also like to thank tonight Bitsy Werlein, for uh, the piano uh, that you will be hearing shortly, the Yamaha piano, Uh, Jody LaFranca of the Bienville House Hotel for providing accommodations for our speaker, and the National Park Service for their assistance with tonight's program. Tonight's speaker, Butch Thompson, is considered by many to be the premier player in traditional jazz today. He maintains a busy schedule of concerts throughout the United States as a soloist and his well-known and with his well-known trio for more than 20 years he has been associated with Garrison Keillor's nationally syndicated radio show A Prairie Home Companion as a recording artist his nine recordings for the daring Rounder label have been much acclaimed however he has also had time to produce his own weekly radio show Jazz Originals aired in Minneapolis and in his spare time, he writes for a wide variety of musical magazines. This brings us to his long-standing research interest in Manuel Fess Manetta. From his youth as a pianist in Storyville to his years as professor of music, Manetta was a tremendous source not only of to New Orleans music, but to Algiers in particular. Manetta's papers are one of the highlights of the Bill Russell collection. And now to hear more about out butch Thompson
1: okay we have a technical problem already there it is you can hear me right thank you glad to hear it <laughs> thank you very much uh, coming this evening. It's great to see you. Uh, and it's an honor to be here as well. And I thought I should uh, start off by saying a few things about... Can? Oh, I can hear myself. <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to speak up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm not used to uh, projecting like that. I'm not an actor. But um, I just thought I'd start out by... Uh, well, first of all, I've tried all afternoon to streamline this talk. I worked very hard on that Uh, Because there was much too much stuff in it, and it was too long and and much too boring. So I think I've got it down to where it's just the conventional boredom level that most of you are probably used to when you come to a lecture like this. And uh, one way to streamline a talk like this is to take out a lot of information and have less information in it because then there's a smaller chance of making a mistake. So uh, this is the streamlined product you're going to get. First of all, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Russell himself. I first met uh, Bill Russell in the early 60s. I first came down here uh, at the instigation of a friend of mine, Charlie DeVore, who was stationed in the Navy in uh, Algiers, and he had been uh, here for a few years, and then he came back to Minneapolis, and that's where I'm from. And Charlie had been talking about Bill Russell and about New Orleans music was trying to introduce me to it, but I had no idea who Bill was. And I came down here with Charlie and some other people in 1962, so that's over 40 years ago. It's hard for me to believe it. And uh, after uh, that first couple of trips, I started to get to know Bill Russell just a little bit. Uh, eventually, I became one of the devoted tribe of life students that he had. Uh, Russell's regulars was the term uh, that was applied... So there's a group of people, Uh, Charlie DeVore was one of them, and these are people from all over the world uh, who were influenced by Bill and uh, great admirers of his as well. Uh, He was a fantastic individual, and I just had a couple of stories to tell you about him. The thing about Mr. Russell was, and I think a lot of people experienced the same thing when they were were, uh, first introduced to him, there was a tendency not to know the extent of his accomplishments because he wasn't going to tell you. So if you hadn't studied his life, as I certainly hadn't, and as others whom I've talked to had not done when they first met Bill, they wouldn't realize uh, the the depth of his knowledge and experience and uh, expertise. And he was a polymath. He was truly uh, an amazingly uh, strong intellect and he knew so much about so many things but he would never brag about that, of course. So, um, I've made a lot of strange mistakes. One of the things uh, I remember happening was at something called the Earth Week Ragtime Festival, uh, which was an event in Minnesota that I had invited Bill Russell to come to and uh, a number of other people as well. Rudy Blesch was there who wrote uh, with his friend, Harriet Janice, he wrote They All Played Ragtime, which is the Bible of Ragtime. Uh, literature, the original research work on ragtime, and uh, some other people, Max Morath, who's a fine performer, and vaudevillian ragtime performer, who's also there, and some other teachers and dignitaries and things, and I was a student, I was kind of a superannuated uh, undergraduate at that point, that means I was too old to be at the level (laughs) I was at, basically, Um, and I I was uh, working with uh, a professor there, a German music professor, and I convinced him that that we ought to stage this event. So we had Bill Russell come up, and I'll try to condense this a little bit. I'm going on too long already. Um, We were going to play Chrysanthemum by Scott Joplin in a little ragtime orchestra that we'd put together for this, and we'd ask Bill to play violin with us. And uh, that was fine because I knew that Bill had been performing that and a lot of other ragtime with the New Orleans Ragtime Orchestra. We've been playing with them for several years. And then at the last minute, I got a little nervous because I realized that chrysanthemum, the way we were playing it, was in a different key from the key that Bill was used to playing it with, the uh, New Orleans Ragtime Orchestra. And uh, I thought, oh no, because he hasn't got any time to rehearse or prepare this, Uh, I I got a little nervous about it, but I should have known better because, of course, he was uh, uh, much more musically fluent than I, than I knew about, because I really was ignorant about his background, didn't know much about it. He took that music into the guest room and plopped it on the music stand and played it beautifully the first time through, although he'd never seen that part before. That's just a small thing, but many, many things like that have happened to people who would find out only gradually, exactly, what they were dealing with, Mr. Russell. He had a unique idea about money and about the capitalist system in general. Uh, he wasn't exactly, uh, well, he was boycotting capitalism. It was a one-man operation. Um, and that was another, another uh, feature of this ragtime festival, was that we were trying to pay Bill something for being there. And uh, he wasn't having any of that, in spite of the fact that he had traveled all the way from New Orleans to Minnesota. It wasn't inexpensive to do that. And we were gonna give him his plane fare and pay some of his expenses, and he he had all kinds of uh, reasons why we shouldn't be doing that and why the money really wasn't his. He didn't deserve it because he didn't actually perform all that well and he didn't do that much work and uh, he just wouldn't accept the expense money. He would not take it. He said, so, "Well that's, that's all right. That didn't cost me that much. And I enjoyed parts of the trip, and I didn't perform that well. I, you really should use that money for something else. He would not take it. So I was stuck with the money. Um, and it was, uh, it was a fair amount of money for, for the time and for me, because I didn't have very much money myself at the time, but it was like something like 150 or 200 bucks. So I had to scour my brain to figure out what to do with this money because the university had already spent it and I had it. But I knew I shouldn't keep it. I was already learning some lessons from Bill. I should not just put that money in my bank account. I had to do something with it and I had to tell him what happened to the money. He had to find out. So I finally, I, I think it was Trevor Richards or someone who told me that Zutty Singleton, the great New Orleans drummer, was living in a hotel in New York uh, with his wife, and he was in very poor health, and he had very little money. So I, to make a long story short, I figured out a way to send this money to them and uh, without letting him know exactly who sent it. That was another problem. He had to be anonymous with these donations or anything like that. Don't try to take credit for it. And then I explained all that to Bill, and he he gave me a good report. He thought that was good. I did the right thing, but I was really sweating there for a while. Um Oh, I've lost my glasses. Okay. And I need to be able to see my notes. What else? Oh, they're in the wrong pocket. Oh, sorry. Good. All right, we're going to get down to business here now. We <laughs> uh, need
2: a double whammy here. Okay. This plus that.
1: Okay. I don't know why. How's this? Can you hear me? Okay, good. (laughs) All right, well, uh, to make a long story uh, a little bit shorter, over the next 30 years or so, I spent a lot of time with Bill sitting in his apartment quite a lot, and uh, I felt uh, like a student much of the time, uh, as well as a friend. Uh, One of the things he taught was attention to the small, small things. Uh, He would say... uh, Do something slowly, it's not worth doing if you can't do it slowly and carefully. And uh, for example, when he was uh, supplying me with unlimited copies of sheet music from his vast collection, he spent a lot of time trying to teach me exactly how to tape that music once it had been Xeroxed. The most efficient way to scotch tape these uh, sheets together and then, and not scotch tape either, it was another kind of tape that wouldn't yellow with age, can't remember what it was. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not that good at that kind of work, but he was. He was a master of uh, this, this infinitely small and infinitely large things in life, and he had a system for things like that. Um, we noticed that Bill did not pay attention to uh, the daily newspapers. Uh, in fact, you might, you might see him reading a paper that was a couple of months old once in a while, and he said it was all the same stuff anyway, but... <laughs> On the other hand, because of his interest in the vagaries of, of human nature, he, he, didn't, he didn't really like, he didn't have a high opinion of human beings in general. Uh, he seemed to think that uh, there were some deficiencies of character that were inescapable um, and that we, that we, we should not uh, aspire to anything as lofty, I guess, as the, the status of, for example, a parakeet our, uh, other, other kinds of animals. And I remember him referring at one time to uh, the writings of John Ruskin on uh, education. Because he knew about all these things. I know very little about John Ruskin and still don't, but I had heard of him. Bill said, well, one of the things that he wrote about was uh, learning by taking risks and making mistakes. And he said, you know, that's really a bad way to approach it. And because human beings are prone to mistakes, and they're allowed to make mistakes, and that's the whole problem, because you get away with it. But take a look at this: the smallest creatures, a parakeet, a bird, a mouse. One mistake, they're finished. <laughs> that's the trouble with human nature. I think I've oh, one more story. I won't mention. I just have to tell this one if it's really good. Um, there was a pianist whom a lot of us in the room know, but I'm not going to mention his name, who, uh, was concerned at one point about Bill Russell's Jelly Roll Morton research and the fact that Bill did not seem to be concentrating on putting the book together, um, fast enough at least to suit his friend. And again, I'm not saying who it is. Some of you will guess, um, It was driving this guy kind of crazy. And Bill didn't like to be bothered about things like that. Uh, So he developed a defense system for that. Whenever this man came into the apartment to talk to Bill and started talking about Jelly Roll Morton and how Bill, Bill, what's your plan? What's your timetable? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? Bill would put on a recording, a free jazz record by Archie Shepp. They say, now listen to that. Isn't that interesting? See what he's doing there? The guy would leave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he is a, a wonderful friend of mine. And one of the things that we want to talk about when we're talking uh, about the Russell and Minetta connection, of course, is the idea of oral history uh, in jazz research, especially. And... Uh, you might notice, if you know very much about Mr. Russell, he, is, he has a reputation as being one of the most astute, uh, clear-headed thinkers, when he wrote about jazz, of, of anyone who ever, who ever tried to do that. Uh, but on the other hand, there's not a huge volume of work that he produced. And that was because, I think it was because he was convinced that the musicians themselves would do a better job of telling the story. Um, and he was enamored of, for example, the book uh, Hear Me Talking to You by Nat Hintoff and, and uh, Nat Shapiro, which I think came out in the mid-50s, 55 or something. Um, he liked that very much. Um, and although he thought there were some mistakes in it, he also liked Alan Lomax's book about Jelly Roll Morton uh, as he liked that firsthand aspect a lot. So he... he he believed in oral history, and he thought the musicians were the ones who knew about the music, not the critics, not the writers, not Bill Russell, but the musicians. So that—that that is why this Manetta thing is so uh, emblematic of Bill Russell's work, and it was a, a real passion for Bill. Um, let's see, where am I? Well, Minetta himself, a fascinating person. Some of you may not know very much about him and I don't have time to summarize his entire career. But one of the things that I always enjoy when I start thinking about someone like Moneta, who was inside of the New Orleans music scene and could tell the story from the inside in fact, didn't realize that there was any way to tell it from the outside, so to speak, Uh, was not a widely-traveled musician. In fact, after after the early 20s, uh, he didn't travel very much at all. He was a teacher. He had a a studio, uh, 410 LaBouche Street in Algiers, which was built, I think, 1922. And he didn't travel very much after that, but he knew everybody and had been associated with everybody, including some of the legendary people that we think of as the, the architects of jazz, the creators of the music. He had played with these people, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong when he was quite young, Johnny Dodds you name it, Buddy Bolden, everybody, he knew Jelly Roll Morton, and that interested me, and I found out that Manetta and Morton had uh, crossed paths early, and um, he called him Wine and Boy, which was his nickname here in New Orleans, not Jelly Roll Morton, he said, oh yeah, Wine and Boy, he was a black key player, that means a self-taught player, and, and, and I had Monetta's light, probably sort of a limited musician. He said, "I used to help him out. He would bring the sheet music to me, and I'd show him how to play it." And that was, to me, that was interesting. That's a perspective on somebody whom I had been idolizing for many years, and I found that very interesting. I couldn't, I couldn't really tell you how my reaction. At first, I was kind of, "What? What is he saying?" Jolly Roll Morton was a genius, but what was interesting was that. Uh, Manuel Mineta didn't seem to realize that Morton had gone on to all these to all these further accomplishments. To him, this was just somebody he knew in New Orleans. And that was his perspective on it. And he had the same perspective. He'd talk about Louis Armstrong, for example, whom he played with uh, in the very, very early days. I've got some dates here which I should be looking at, but I'm not. He said, oh yeah, 1917 or so, he said, Little Louie, who was then something like 16 years old, only played three tunes. He played the blues. He played something called Wind and Grind. And he played Take take Your Finger Out of Katie's Head, which later became uh, I Wish I Could Shimmy Like My Sister Kate, and that was it. He had those three tunes. (laughs) That was Little Louie. And at this point, I think we've been talking about Manetta's teaching, and he taught a lot of influential and famous musicians as well as just uh, many, many others who kind of formed a, kind of the warp and the woof of New Orleans musical life for decades. Uh, one of the things that Manetta used to do when he was teaching, we found out, the students could, uh, could actually have him write out a song for the lesson. And this would be kind of like a treat, it cost extra. Uh, You could take a a tune a week home with you, or maybe it'd take you two or three weeks to learn something. But you had to pay a little bit extra because he was going to write out something for you to work on, a tune. And you had to pay him for his time. So I think by the time the 50s came along, it was something like a quarter for one of these lead sheets. And he'd give you a tune like that lucky old son or something, and you'd take it home and practice it on your trombone or whatever. In fact, I know somebody who did that. Um, got that too, and he was a trombone student. Um, at, at this point, I think what I'm going to do, as part, I think as part of his teaching, he wrote out something which actually became extremely, uh, extremely, universally played by everyone who has ever played a piece of music called Panama, uh, which originated as kind of a ragtime uh, habanera, and I've got a an assistant here who's going to come up here and help me with this. This is a, a ragtime piece by William Tyers called Panama, which, as I said, was, at first was kind of a, a Cuban-style rhythm. Uh, and in fact, I'll play a little bit of that before my guest and I play an arrangement that Mineta wrote out for violin. And this is appropriate because, as you, a lot of you probably know, uh, Bill Russell was a violinist. And, uh, they did actually play together, especially in the later years. We'll get to some more of that too later on. So this is going to be Panama. Let me just show you a little bit of how the original music, uh, the sheet music. I can play some of that so you get the idea of the original style of this ragtime piece. And then my friend Rat Matt Rat. <laughs> Matt Rody, now you can tell I'm nervous, right? Matt Rody is a violinist, actually is from Minnesota as I am and he's been living here in New Orleans for a few years. He's gonna help me out by playing this violin version of this, but first I'll show you what it sounded like in the original sheet music, just play a few bars of that. That just gives you an idea of the style of, the, uh, of this ragtime piece, which nobody, by the time uh, Manetta wrote this out for some of his students, notably uh, Emmett Hardy, uh, who was a uh, cornetist, and Red Allen was another one, a trumpet player. Uh, it, nobody was playing it that way, they were playing it as a, as a jazz tune with a different kind of rhythm. Uh, but what's interesting about this is that there's a, a melodic variation on the last string which Matt will play, And uh, it's a Mineta invention. And everybody plays, at least part of this, who plays the tune. It's persisted till this day. It goes back something like 80 years or more, so. All right. Are we gonna tune up, or is this? Oh, we did, didn't we? (laughs) It's a jazz one. Obviously, the part I'm talking about is this. Or sort of like that. That's it. That's a variation. That's a, that's a variation that uh, I can imagine uh, Fess kind of sitting there one day and saying, I'm going to write something out for this tune and give it to a couple of students and just kind of tossing it off the top of his head. But everybody played at least the first part of it and still does even to this day. And uh, Matt Rohde will be back to play something, uh, something more towards the end of the. Uh, I guess this is a lecture, isn't it? <laughs> or performance? All right. I, I've got to uh, cut some corners here. Anyway, we're going to get the inside story of New Orleans music uh, from Manuel Manetta. That's what Bill Russell was after, and. Uh, think I would do well right now to read you his description of the book. Some of you who knew Bill would recognize his handwriting if you could get a closer look at this. Um, he didn't use a typewriter. He didn't use a desk. Um, he often used a pencil, as I think he did here, though. This is a Xerox. and so This comes right out of the files here, too. Um, and this uh, is dated April 1968. So this is... This is uh, later on when plans for the book were solidifying pretty much in, uh, in Bill's mind and he wanted to organize things and describe the project. So he says, Materials Already Collected, April 1968 for the Minetta Book, parentheses, autobiography, close parentheses. Okay. The title of the book was Hoss, H-O-S-S, which was Manetta's nickname back in the old days, not Fess, Haas. And then probably a colon, though he doesn't have one here. It says, A History of Old Algiers and New Orleans. And, uh, by the way, I think Haas, Dick Allen told me that the name Haas came from the fact that Manetta used to stomp his foot like a horse when he played. Uh, Could be, probably true. Dick heard it from somebody. At any rate, here's a description of what was going to be in the book, the raw materials. He says, tape recordings, interviews, and music lessons. Uh, Then he's written down some figures. 81 plus 14, all recorded March 1957 to April 1968. Approximately 245 reels of tape. Perhaps another 40 to be recorded by 1969, so we're talking about 285 reels of tape. And then he has a note saying, actually, as of April 26, 1968, there are a total of 260 Mineta tapes, 12 of which are one hour in length. A few are mostly music. Then he's got photos, he's got over 200 photos that he had picked out, collected, and taken, dating from 1895 to 1968. 50 or 60 will probably go in the book. Not very many, he says. Only 50 or 60. <laughs> sheet music. Uh, many relevant titles in my collection of 1,100 pieces. Blues, rags, uh, popular sheet music, etc. Magazines, clippings, a limited quantity, probably not over 50. Okay. Well, it's quite a project. Then he got concerned, as he always did, about the financial arrangements. I um, wanted to make sure that... Everybody was taken care of, and especially the protagonist of the book here, uh, Manuel Mineta. And so he's got a contract here, again. And I'm not violating his privacy because, you know, we all we all admire this man tremendously. I'm, and this, you know, this is not, I thought about this, but I don't think so. Um, handwritten, it says New Orleans, Louisiana, December 8, 1967. This is an agreement concerning the story of Professor Manuel Moneta's life, the story will be prepared and edited from recorded tapes and put into book form by William Russell. If the book can be sold to a publisher or published on a royalty basis, all receipts from publication in any form will be divided equally between Manuel Moneta and William Russell after such expenses as cost of taping the story and photographs are deducted. As a part of these expenses, Manuel Moneta is being paid five dollars at the time of each session of taping the story. Also, Manuel Moneta is being paid $100 as an advance against any royalties. William Russell shall negotiate a contract with a publisher, if possible, when the book is completed. And the accounting reports on the royalty payments, et cetera, must be made available. And they both signed it. So the plans were... plans were... uh, fairly solid there, and it's fairly detailed, in fact. Uh, And in fact, Bill tried to get some funding from the Ford Foundation. Uh, He applied for a grant ERC April 30th, no, January 1st, 1969. Okay, so as you can see, he knew exactly what he was up to. And he was doing it in his characteristic fashion trying to streamline here just a bit. Um, I I forgot to tell you this one, and I should, because it's pretty good. Uh, There was another another, uh, Jelly Roll Morton connection that I should have mentioned earlier. It's pretty good. It seems that in the early days when he was first learning about music as a kid, uh, Fess had the idea that he wanted to play piano, but like Jelly Roll Morton, he thought maybe that was a woman's instrument, so he wasn't too sure about it. Until his father apparently took him to see a pianist at the Ping Pong, uh, which was at the corner of uh, Brooklyn and Homer Streets over there in Algiers, kind of a kind of a dive, I think. And uh, he heard a pianist named Gussie Neal over there. He also heard a guy named Joe Perkins over there, and we'll say a couple more words about Mister Perkins in just a minute. And uh, because he admired these people, thought it was okay to play the piano. So uh, we're lucky, very lucky about that. And, uh, Im- the emblematic, the symbol, if you like, or the, uh, the thing that kind of ties all this together for us tonight, I think, is uh, this piece of music called the Old New Orleans Blues. Very interesting piece. Matt, why don't you come up, because we'll be doing this here in a minute. Uh, I have to talk about it for about five minutes or something. Uh, the Old New Orleans Blues. This is a piece of music that Mr. Russell... Uh, commissioned, he asked Fess to write a blues out for him, and uh, to use some of these old melodies, blues melodies, which have been played by so many people here in New Orleans, and uh, Fess did that, and I've been listening to these uh, interviews, and uh, things that were recorded in the studio, and this one's pretty good, because it's in 1968, um, sometime, I can't remember the exact date, although I wrote it down here, and I have lost my dates. But, uh, so it's fairly, fairly late, and the piece, um, has been commissioned, so uh, Bill shows up, he's got a violin with him, which he's kind of tuning and messing around with, and they're talking about the violin. Turns out it's not really Bill Russell's violin, it's one of Mineta's instruments that Bill has repaired for him, and, uh, it, uh, Bill is playing a few of the melodies from the blues, and they're talking about Pops Foster and other friends and things. And then they decided to get down to business. The first thing that Mr. Russell had to do then is tune the violin to Fess's piano, which is an old upright piano it was about one full step flat, and always was. It also had a very noisy, noisy action. Um, okay, so. They get that accomplished, and then they, they go into this blues, and they talk about all the different sections of the blues. And I think the microphone works if I go over to the piano and talk from there, so I'm going to do that. Um, when you when you hear us play this, there's an introduction that sounds exactly... When I heard this tape myself for the first time back in about 1970, I thought, that's Jelly Roll Morton's melody. That's I had heard this intro played on a recording by Jelly Roll Morton called New Orleans Joys. And Morton's introduction sounds like this. And he goes on. That's the Jelly Roll Morton introduction. Well, it's exactly the same intro that Fess used on this blues. Uh, And what Fess said about it was, this is a, a kind of a call to arms or something. Uh, that uh, Buddy Bolden used to play, which made people kind of run to the dance floor because they knew it was time to dance. It's sort of a, a prologue or something, uh, a fanfare. And uh, then you get down to the blues. And the, first, the first strain uh, of this, uh, this consists of several melodies. The first one is one that was uh, played by Buddy Bolden, and that's where Fess said it came from and he discussed this with Bill, too, so Bill was taking notes, which I've seen. Uh, The second strain uh, Fess attributed to a white piano player, one of the very few uh, Caucasians to work in Storyville, apparently, during its heyday, and uh, that was a pianist named Kid Ross. And then the, the third strain is something that a lot of you will probably recognize if I tell you that it's the Holler Blues effect, uh, and it sounds like this. Everybody yells. <coughs> okay. There's another Jelly Roll Morton connection there too. Uh, which uh, occurred to me when I was thinking about this today. And that is. Uh, that's also used. Uh, in Morton's record of London Blues. Which when he recorded it. Uh, with a band. Uh, had another title. It was the first recording of New Orleans jazz that Bill Russell ever listened to uh, carefully and it's what got him interested in the music. Shoeshiner's Drag, it was called. That's used in Morton's recording, the holler blues thing. Okay, and then the last melody uh, I think is the one that we can attribute uh, to Joe Perkins, perhaps, um, who was the other pianist that uh, Fess heard at the ping pong uh, and He admired him quite a bit, and he said, Everybody pick this melody up. It's called something like the Graveyard Blues, and there's a lyric, uh, something about not being able to wait until the hearse passes your front door, or something like that. Um, And that melody sounds like this. That much of it is played by so many trumpet players, uh, Bunk Johnson, Freddie Keppard, Punch Miller... Uh, Mutt Carey, uh, Guy Kelly, many, many New Orleans trumpet players use that melody. So we've got a whole anthology of New Orleans folk material here in this one short little piece. Uh, And it's something that uh, that Bill Russell played pretty much for the rest of his life after that. He used to play it a lot with the New Orleans Ragtime Orchestra. I played it with him several times. (coughs) I used to have a tape uh, of a of a rehearsal that he and I were having in the Bahamas. Don't ask me how we got there, but we were down there and you can hear uh, the surf in the background and the ocean breezes, and you can hear us playing old New Orleans blues. We play through one take and... Uh, yeah, that's right. <coughs> so we play it through once on this, t- on this recording and, uh, and Bill says, Perfect. Then we play it again, and he says, even more perfect. <laughs> anyway, we'll see if... Uh <laughs> One more thing about the history of this, uh, of This, as well as that uh, Bill sent this tape to me that I was referring to. I think it was April 1968 that they made it uh, in the studio and asked me if I could try to transcribe it, so I did. And there it is. And... Uh, Matt and I are going to play this here in a minute. I'll try to read this, although it's jazz. It's old jazz, so you have to read it, see? No, that's not true. Um, At least it helps me get the spirit of it, to look at the music. Old New Orleans Blues, and I guess if we're gonna give it a date of composition, it is 1968. Okay, all set? One, two, one two three Thank you, Matt. Last, well, Matt Rode on the violin <laughs> did a terrific job. It actually uh, made me feel very nostalgic for those days when I sit around and play that with with Bill Russell. Um, We have some more treats in store for you. Unfortunately, Matt is a working musician. And if you want to stay, you can, Matt, but uh, his official duties are over. (laughs) I've got a a few more things to entertain you with uh, here, including, uh, and this I think is a real real treat, some uh, sound recording and video from 1957, uh, September 6th, 1957. Uh, and uh, this is an 8 millimeter film, which we now have on a video, taken in uh, Fess's teaching studio. Uh, and it's very, very nice to see him sitting there playing the piano. Uh, and what he's playing in this particular segment, and I have my, uh, my assistant here, my technical assistant, Charlie DeVore, who is actually also responsible for the recording and for the film, uh, Charlie's going to try to remember which buttons to push so that we can start the CD and the film. They don't match. It is possible to do this with digital technology, I suppose, but it's very complicated because there are glitches in the film and glitches in the recording. Uh, but we have, we have both, and uh, this will give you a real good idea of what uh, Professor Mineta was like as a person. And to see him play, it's really fascinating. And I guess we're all set. He's, oh, say, what, what is he playing? He's playing a ragtime. He's playing Scott Joplin, and it's a piece called The Cascades. And I think the length of the film is probably shorter than the actual music, but we'll just have to stop the film. We should listen to most of the performance. Um, this is Joplin, and interestingly, uh, if, you, if you watch this, you can see that Fest does not have to read music to play this because he knew these Joplin rags. By heart, he has some music on the, on the music rack on the piano, but he's not reading it. Um, and in fact, it's kind of puzzling as to what that music is, but that's another story. Uh, so the Cascades by Scott Joplin, and if we can get these things to work, we'll be able to see him and hear them. Okay. <laughs> so far, so good. same reason as before you have to turn it on there you go the tv was off turn off okay now play <laughs> yeah don't aim it like that. there you go there you go okay yeah Sounds great, doesn't he? <laughs> Very solid player. I just got it going to get warmed up. I just thought i take Perfect timing, of, as well. Uh, if you're if you're a Scott Joplin fan, you probably notice that he's not playing it exactly as it was written. Uh, in fact, he's doing quite a lot of uh, embellishing and decorating, and uh, he's got a terrific beat too. That that's really a New Orleans. Yeah, the Haas part. <laughs> you Can hear his foot, uh, and it's really very interesting. It's it's like Jelly Roll Morton used to do when he played time uh, If you're a a fan of Jolly Roll Morton's or even if you're not, uh, if you're not, I'll tell you, if you are, I'll remind you that he didn't play them as written um, at all. He he thought perhaps that would be wrong. It's not that he didn't admire Joplin, and it's certainly not that Fest did not admire Joplin, uh, but the point was to have your own way of playing stuff. Uh, Your repertoire is what you base your playing on, but your playing is you, and uh, that's that's the whole idea. That's what you do when you want to become a jazz musician. or uh, And that's what all these guys were after. Uh, it was individuality. Was part of it. Uh, a lot of ragtime players felt that way, too. Joplin wanted you to play things as they were written, but uh, Fest didn't do it. Neither did Jelly Roll Morton, and neither did Tony Jackson, probably, or uh, Steve Lewis or any of the rest of the great New Orleans pianists, some of whom we haven't heard much of. Um, All right, next we're going to, uh, you saw a little preview there of, uh, you probably, a lot of you have seen photos, perhaps, of uh, fast playing two brass instruments simultaneously, uh, but you haven't heard him do it, and you haven't seen a film of it. Uh, And I think our next, maybe we should uh, skip one there, Charlie, because we're running low on time. Um, No? Yeah. Let's go to number four. I'll start audio. Right. This is two trumpets, by the way. What you saw, I think, was trumpet and trombone, but everything we have on the sound uh, is uh, two trumpets simultaneously. Maybe I should talk about it for a second, too, before we do it. Um, the, the amazing thing about this was not, not only that he could actually have two brass embouchures, one in each side of his mouth, but that what he played with those two embouchures was completely uh, different. Um, he's going to play harmonies and things, little accents. Uh, a lot of the time things are kind of parallel, but they're not exactly parallel. And uh, he's going to have counterpoint and all kinds of things happening, which uh, require two brains. And uh, I don't know how he did it. On, on the tape, one of the, one of the interviews that I have listened to, uh, well, in fact, it's, it was this day, Charlie, sorry, I'm quoting you now. You asked him how long it took him to learn to do this, and uh, he didn't want to say. <laughs> he didn't want to say right away, but he he said it was 1927, I think that's what he mentioned in that particular interview, which is later than I would have thought. But he said that's when he, when he decided to do it, and it took him about a year to get the, uh, the twin embouchures built up. See, part of this is dazzlement, too. And that, and that is uh, the same thing that you can say about the uh, the piano players like Jelly Roll Morton, uh, Tony Jackson, and everyone else. Uh, part of the, the idea of being a, a pianist was uh, to, be, to be seeming to do impossible things that were impossible to copy. And is just taking this one step further. He's a man of a thousand instruments. And uh, we watched him do some wonderful acrobatic things on one occasion, Uh, up north, which I'll tell you about after we watch this next segment and listen to some of the music. Okay, that's the trombone. Pretty soon it'll be two. Whoops, no. Track four. Just move it ahead four to four. Advance it, yeah. No, that doesn't work. No, I think you just skip skip tracks. There's some arrows there. Yeah. So still the trombone there, but pretty soon it changes. Yeah, I don't think I don't I don't. It doesn't seem to be. Yeah. No, that's the beginning. No, come on. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I got Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: All right. right. like, until we meet again, I'm, I don't mean to cut that short, but I want to play the last, which I think is number six. And This was a, a popular tune he's going to play next called Melody of Love. Um, but Charlie... Charlie asked him if he could swing that one meaning don't play don't give me the sweet version this time give me the the stomp version I think so yeah I think it's the last one well no you just push the arrows yeah twice yeah or maybe only once I've probably done I think this nope sorry just hit the arrow a couple times and see where we are
2: He about eight or nine years old, and uh, when Dick Young and I would go over to Algiers to plow the brass bands, as soon as he'd spot us, he'd come tearing out of the house yeah. and grab our hands, and we'd walk around listening to the various brass bands that we'd heard. Oh, this was back in 1956, 57. And uh, he really became a, a good friend. Uh, his name was Clarence Matthews. And uh, he found out that I was going over to Manuel Mineta's place on Saturday mornings for my cornet lesson, and he would come over, so he was almost always there. And I had kind of forgotten about Clarence, and there, there you saw him. Uh, two years ago, uh, I, was, I took a cab out to the airport, and the cab driver said, uh, what do you got in your case sir? Are you a musician? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I'm uh, what kind of music? And I said, well, it's it's older New Orleans music. When I lived down there in the 50s, I was stationed in the Navy, and that's how I got started playing music. And he said, uh, that's interesting. Did you know a fellow by name of Dick Allen? And I said, yes, yeah, I did. He's one of my closest friends. My brother, when he was little, he used to paddle around with Dick Allen. Whenever Dick was <laughs> over there watching parades, he would come out of the house and grab his hand and watch around. there was another white guy with him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so it was me. <laughs> he was car- his brother was also a cab driver. Clarence Matthews now driving cab, and I gave him his telephone number, and uh, I haven't been able to reconnect with him. But isn't that serendipitous? I mean, that was just two years ago. It was a little, little Clarence there. In the... So, you know, New Orleans music, we're all one big happy family.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, so we'll try this. My Thank you, Charlie. The commission has taken over. <laughs> Let us see where we are. Okay. Okay, that's the beginning. Ah. be it. Sorry, you didn't get to see what he was doing there while we played that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's something else again. Another story. Charlie has films of other things as well. Anyway, that's the multi-instrumentalist, uh, man of a thousand instruments, Manuel Manetta. And uh, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. I'm uh, sorry we didn't have the t- the technical side of it integrated little bit better than we did but uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, some of this presentation I certainly have enjoyed doing it it's been great Um, and uh, we've had uh, yeah we could why don't we play another couple choruses of something Matt uh, Matt's still here we can come up we can play some more uh, a couple more choruses of Panama and uh, or did you put your instrument away I'm sorry We're going to uh, take things out here with a few more choruses of Panama. a um, uh, Panama. Yeah. But, you know, we don't have to really stick to the score exactly. I guess once we get to the last part, we won't.
0: of the oral histories, what,
1: what was the major, how, how
3: old
0: was Manata in the, in yes. the
3: 60s? Yes,
1: very good question. Thank you. That's a very good question. Um, all right, I'll repeat the question. I'm, oh, I'm just sorry. curious, how old, uh, yeah. how old was Minetta in the,
0: in the, when the bulk of those oral histories were being done yeah. by Bill
3: by, by Okay,
1: when, when Bill Russell was doing all this oral history, this all started in the mid 50s. Bill uh, relocated to New Orleans permanently in, in 1956, and he opened his uh, shop right down the street here at 600 Charters. And uh, sometime not long after he arrived here on that occasion, I think is when he first met Minetta. I don't think he had met him earlier. It's possible. Uh, but Erwin uh, Helfer, who's a blues pianist from Chicago and was a student at Tulane at that time, uh, may have met fast before Bill did. Um, I'm not really sure about that, but at any rate, Bill, who is already uh, pursuing oral histories, and everybody knows that that many of uh, Bill Russell's interviews uh, kind of were the cornerstone of the, of the Hogan Jazz Archive, That's, And Bill was the first curator of that institution. So he he was already doing oral history, but when he met, when Anna was in the mid-50s, so the the interviews continued until just shortly before Fest died in October of 1969. So uh, that's a lot of years, but it's a lot of tape, too. (laughs) It's amazing. Not all of them have been Transcribed.
2: The fest was born in uh, 1889. Yeah. So that 1957,
3: he was 68 years old. uh, Yeah.
0: And and why are some of the why are some of the history still at at the Hogan Archive, or or what?
1: Well, I think that's because those were in Bill's original donation to the archive of his materials. That's all, you know. And uh, that's why they're up there. But the bulk of the, of the material has been transferred to cassettes here at the Historical New Orleans Collection. And it's, if you want to listen to it, come up here and do it. I mean, in fact, we could use some help transcribing these things. Uh, and uh, that's something we ought to get going on pretty soon, I think. Uh, let's see, I, I did have one other thing to say about that. But well, let's, uh, let's play this piece of music and then I'll give you the official bye-bye after that. Uh, this pan- Evan. Do you have your clarinet with you? Um, not, not quickly. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ready? Yeah. A little bit, slightly. A one, a two, a one, two, three. <laughs> Well, again, thank you very, very much for coming, and I I did mean to tell you uh, about the time that Mineta came up and played with us up north. This was a fantastic experience. Uh, He came up there with Bill Russell, uh, and Pops Foster, the great bass player, was also there, uh, and a number number of other luminaries, but those are the people that really stand out, and uh, Raymond Burke, a great clarinetist down here. Uh, anyway, we had, we, uh, we had people sitting in with each other all weekend, and, and uh, Fess sat down and played piano with us, and uh, it was an incredible experience, because in everything I had learned, I thought I was studying the music fairly seriously up to that point, and I had been watching a lot of the uh, bands down here, who, uh, for example, the Kid Thomas Valentine Band, and a lot of people who played at Preservation Hall, and I thought that the role of the piano in the band. Uh, was, uh, among other things, uh, to keep fairly straight rhythmic accompaniment. I thought that was the most the most effective way to play. And uh, I, I wasn't... Although I'd heard recordings, of course, by Jelly Roll Morton and pianists from other parts of the country, too, like Fats Waller and James P. Johnson and others who play a lot of piano behind all the soloists and in the ensembles and everything, and it seems to work, I thought in New Orleans that wasn't exactly how you did it. And I was... Like like most people who are fairly young and inexperienced, uh, as I still am, I guess, but at the time I, even more so, uh, I thought there was only one way to do things. Sorry, I had this idea that there was one right way if I was going to play New Orleans piano in a band, I was going to do it this way. But Mineta was doing something completely different. He didn't play any less piano in the ensemble than he did when he was playing solos. But it did not detract from... The, the rhythm—it swung like crazy—and in fact, our band picked up about seven or eight notches as soon as he sat down there and started playing. And we, we played—we uh, played Panama, and I'm pretty sure that was it. And because uh, I remember Charlie announcing pretty much what we've been talking here about Fess's variation on the last strain of Panama, and this—the you know, rhythm was absolutely great, and he played more piano on that. Uh, than any 10 other piano players would play when they're playing a solo set, it was incredible. And then, just to make sure we all understood who was the boss, uh, he, <laughs> he did a bunch of his, his other uh, material including uh, the two brass, uh, he played now is the hour, and he played trombone, and uh, he, he used your, your cornet, I think, and, and uh, Hawaiian war chant. <laughs> uh, well, and he did some of the other tricks as well, including a little bit of playing uh, piano, uh, turning around on the on the piano bench, so that you're playing with the backs of your fingers, reaching behind your back. And of course, he did the 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 other trick where you play a Dixie in in the uh, right hand, I think it is, and uh, Yankee Doodle in the left. Uh, and a few other things, and we were well and truly flabbergasted and <laughs> intimidated. No, it was it was a wonderful experience. Brought the house down. They threw their hats away, as Jelly Roll Morton said. And uh, I think this is uh, as good a place uh, as any to stop. I hope I've at least given you some idea of who these people were and uh, what they were doing together. And uh, all this material is available here at the Historic New Orleans Collection. So if you're really interested, you can come back here and, and take a look at just about anything that we've talked about. Uh, not this film at this point, but who knows, that may end up here too sometime. It's hard to say. Um, thank you all very much for for coming tonight, and uh, hope to see you again when the uh, manual Moneta band bus pulls into your town. <laughs> thank you very much, thanks. Yeah.